welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Today you are joined by your hosts, as always, Tiara and Jack. And thank you so much for joining us today on our 38th podcast episode. We just wanted to take a very quick minute to announce something quite exciting. This past week, Jack and I have actually just launched our brand new website, which is called www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com. And on this website... There are three W's there, not two. Did I say WW? Oh, whoopsies. <laughs> WWW, triple W. <laughs> so the new site basically includes what services we offer, which is competition prep, improvement season coaching, just general training and nutrition coaching, dietetic consultations, and also posing lessons as well. And that's all online and it can be local as well if you live in our area. So other than that, we also have the podcast listed on there, a page about us, and also very importantly, the inquire now page so if you ever want to inquire about any of our coaching then you know where to go to yeah exactly that is a fantastic way to get in contact with us so certainly look up www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com and we would absolutely love some feedback on the website too because you know it's been a really fun project we've been working on behind the scenes and we would love to hear what you guys think and we also just want to say that we absolutely appreciate so much all of the positive feedback and support that we get from this podcast honestly it does not go unnoticed and we just want to say a huge thank you to all of you guys and yeah if you like the podcast please always feel free to take a screenshot of it post it to your instagram stories tag myself tag jack tag the bodybuilding dietitians tell your friends tell your family yeah, all that good stuff. All right, so today we've got an exciting question and answer episode lined up for you. So we're going to jump straight into the questions. So this one's by Ellie and she asks, a breakdown of your comp prep plan if you have one for Tierra. Woohoo! All right, so we are recording this on Friday, the 30th of August, and tomorrow I start comp prep for my season A 2020 competition prep. Holy crap, I'm so excited. So tomorrow is kickoff day. Uh, Tomorrow will be 25 weeks out from my very first show. So I guess just a quick rundown of my plan. Essentially, my current macros right now during my improvement season, I guess this is my very last day of a surplus. Right now I'm sitting at around 170 protein, 400 carb, and 40 fat. So starting off tomorrow, I'm bringing those down to 140 protein, 300 carb, and 40 fat. So yeah, just slightly reducing protein a little bit, still definitely consuming a adequate amount. It's mainly just gonna come down because my carbohydrate intake is coming down. And I'm not gonna lie, because I eat a lot of whole grains, I get a lot of protein from things like extra oats, wholemeal flour, potatoes, you name it. It just, it all really, really adds up. (laughs) All right, so yeah, moving forward with a plan. Essentially, I'm going to be dieting for six weeks straight. I'll see how long I can, you know, stretch out those, uh, the macros that I just listed, how long that keeps me in a deficit for. I'm going to do that for six weeks. If my body weight stalls, you know, I'll make the appropriate adjustments so that I keep losing body weight. I'm really aiming for a rate of loss during the first six weeks, 
around, you know, half a kilogram per week. That's again why I'm giving myself a 25 week prep because I don't want to do anything drastic. I want to take a more gradual approach. So after the first six weeks of dieting, I'm going to take a one week diet break where I will bring myself back up to maintenance calories. The reason why I'm doing this is just because, you know, during the first six weeks, it should be quite easy to lose weight. You know, I'm not going to have any like negative metabolic adaptations or anything like that. But at that six week mark, anecdotally in the past when I've dieted, that's when I really start to actually feel the diet fatigue around that six week mark. So I'm going to give myself a one week diet break then. Following that, I'm going to move into five low days and two high days. So five low days will essentially still have me in a caloric deficit. And then those two high days are going to bring me back up to maintenance calories. Thinking about putting those two high days on a Thursday and a Friday because I take my rest days on Wednesdays and Sundays so that, you know, that extra glycogen can be carried over into my Saturday session too. So yeah, five low days, two high days. And then after another six weeks of that, I'm going to take another week-long diet break. After that week-long diet break, I'm going to move into four low days, three high days. And those three high days will be on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And that will get me really, my body really used to, you know, kind of preparing for that carb up for the show because my first show is on the 22nd of February. It'll be the Queensland qualifier for IFBB. So yeah, that'll be on a Saturday. So that'll kind of get me my body prepared for carbing up for that show, which should be really good. But yeah, I know there's quite a few weeks left after that uh, when I transition into those four low days, three high days. But again, because I'm looking so far into the future and anyone who has ever done a comp prep before, they know that the plan is very flexible, you know? So I'm not setting anything in stone right now on the 30th of August (laughs) for what's going to happen next January because I just don't know. So I'm going to have to cross that bridge appropriately when I get there. But yeah, that's exciting. So yeah, my first show will be Queensland Qualifier 22nd of February. Then I've got a whole month until the Arnold's down in Melbourne. That'll be around the 20th of March, which is super exciting. So what I'll probably do is after my first show for IFBB here in Queensland, I'll probably give myself another week-long diet break and then prepare for three weeks later for the Arnold's. After the Arnold's, that will finish around the 20th of March. I won't actually be competing again until early May because I want to do the ICN shows and I also want to do AWNBS too. And they usually start beginning of May and run all throughout May. It might even go into June. Honestly, this comp prep is going to be a freaking marathon. (laughs) But after Arnold's, I'm probably going to give myself a good two week diet break before I then probably transition back into four low days, three high days in a lead up to my uh, ICN and AWNBS shows. But yeah, that's my plan so far. I'm freaking pumped. I'm so freaking excited. Kicks off tomorrow. But you know, the interesting thing is, is that I already live this lifestyle. (laughs) So really the only thing that's going to change tomorrow is my caloric intake. So yeah, super excited. Can't wait. I've literally been planning for this for years. I've been, you know, in my improvement season for a good year and a half now. And 
yeah, I'm ready, man. I'm so freaking ready. So by the time this podcast comes out, I would have started prep. So let's do it. All right. So sorry, that was a bit long. Yeah, I can't wait to see Tierra compete. And I think she's put a lot of thought and effort into planning this prep. So I think it'll go really well. Thanks so much. (laughs) If I'm going to have anyone's approval, I definitely want it to be yours. So, all right. So moving on to the next question. This one says, do you train abs in isolation? So Tierra and I both train abs in isolation. And I guess it's a bit of a hot topic. There are some people think, some people do think that training abs will like thicken your waist or increase the size of your obliques. And The other party also thinks that training like squats, deadlifts, and your compound movements will also train your abs as well, which is, which is true. And I guess Tia and I decide to train our abs because we don't really want to leave anything to chance, I guess. And probably we, abdominals are an area that we could probably both work on. I personally don't think that training your abs will suddenly make you have a very thick waist or anything like that either. No, to be honest, I think it's actually the biggest lie in the fitness industry when people say abs are made in the kitchen. Honestly, guys, that is total bull crap, okay? I have just, this is anecdotally, but I'm sure a hell of a lot of people can relate to this. You know, I've been stupidly low body fat percentages before, and I've never had a six pack. And the reason for that is because I didn't have the muscle mass. I didn't build myself a strong core so that it looked like I have a six pack. And I feel like a lot of people are under the impression that if you diet down and if you get lean enough, then yes, your abs will show. But the truth is that's only possible if you have the muscle mass in the first place. And I don't know why people think that abs are any different to any other muscle group. Like, can you imagine if people were like, yeah, man, you just have to get lean enough for your calves to show or (laughs) for your biceps to show. It's like, yeah, maybe they'll show, but they're not going to be very impressive. Like, (laughs) maybe you might see a small calf striation, but... Like, you're, you're not going to want to show them off. You're probably going to wear track pants. So anyway, I don't know why people treat abs any differently. They're just like any other muscle group. You need to train them. You need to develop them. You need to grow the muscle there in order for them to be impressive and in order for them to show off too. And yeah, just like Jack said, you know, a lot of people are under the impression that you can just build a strong core by doing deadlifts and doing squats and your big compound movements And the thing is, when you think about it like this, compound movements like that, they require you to have a strong core, obviously, because you need to brace yourself, but they don't necessarily build you a strong core. And the best exercises to do for your abdominals, basically just like any other muscle on your body is an exercise that takes it through an eccentric and a concentric contraction. So even something like a crunch or a hanging leg raise or some decline sit-ups, you know, something that actually helps that muscle contract and treat it just like any other muscle group, you know, apply progressive overload too. So lift, if you're doing, for example, like a decline sit-up, progressively hold a heavier weight so you're further challenging your abs or do an extra set or do a few more reps. You really need to train them. And 
Also, if you build up your abs to be more muscular, they're actually going to show when you are at a higher body fat percentage too, which is always nice when you uh, take photos at the beach in your improvement season. (laughs) Yeah, and personally, I tend to lean more towards a weighted abdominal exercises, just like any other muscle group you want to progressively add load over time. So I usually do either a machine curl or a weighted abdominal crunch or something like a weighted hanging leg or knee raise, something that you can actually track over time and progress in as opposed to like 60 crunches or 100 crunches or even having a whole session dedicated to abs. I find that a bit demotivating for me. So I usually just add three or four sets to the end of each workout and that'll equal around 15 to 20 total sets a week. Yeah, I think that's a great way to approach it. And personally, I even train, I train my core every single uh, training session. And I actually train my abs in the middle of my session because I find out that it actually gives me a nice break because and allows me to be stronger in my following movement. So for example, if I'm doing an upper body session, I might do my first three or four exercises, and then I might give myself a little bit of recovery time for my upper body while I go do some core work, and then I'll come back and I actually find that I'm a little bit stronger and I have some more endurance near the end of my session. So you could always consider doing that too. And it holds you accountable to keep training your abs as well, so yeah. Okay, so we shall move on to the next question. So this one was asked by my client, Danny, and it says, protein throughout the day is more than 30 grams at once too much. So I think we've all heard a few misconceptions when it comes to protein, like if you eat, like protein is damaging for the uh, kidneys, or if you eat too much protein, it'll be bad for you, or if you eat too much protein, it'll be stored as fat. And I actually did a Google search and all of those things came up in like probably like the first three or four search results. And they were actually legitimate claims as well. They weren't like joking. Which the is top pretty- five dangers of protein. <laughs> so yeah, 30 grams is not too much. And what Tierra and I try and do is aim for around 0.4 to 0.5 grams of protein per kilo of body weight each meal. And that'll be HPV protein, so usually coming from an animal. And then we'll also usually have additional protein on top of that from our grain and plant sources as well. So let's say for breakfast this morning, I had yogurt as my HPV protein source. And then I also had protein from oats and chia seeds, flax meal, and all that sort of stuff as well. And I'll let Tierra describe what happens when you do have more than 30 or 40 grams of protein. Yeah, so a lot of people are under the impression that if you consume over 20 grams or over 30 grams at once, you know, then it's immediately going to go poof straight into your fat cells or something like that. But we have to remember that protein in the body isn't just used for skeletal muscle mass. You know, yes, skeletal muscle mass is the greatest bodily store of protein and of amino acids, but Protein is so goddamn important for so many bodily functions. So protein is integrated to our skin and our bones and our hair and our nails. It's absolutely essential for enzyme function too. All of our enzymes are made from amino acids and protein. It's also very important for our blood and our cardiovascular health and our arteries, everything. So protein is super, super important. So that 0.4 to 0.5 grams per kilogram of body weight per meal consumed 
those are recommendations for what is going to maximally stimulate muscle protein synthesis. Now, if you consume more protein than that, what's actually going to happen is those extra amino acids are just going to go into your body's amino acid pool, and they can just be used for other bodily functions like I mentioned before. And it's very unlikely that extra protein and extra amino acids are going to be converted into fat tissue. The process by which that would be done is through de novo lipogenesis, but it's not very efficient. It costs the body a lot of energy in order to do that. So yeah, usually, you know, fat tissue is predominantly made up from fatty acids and triglycerides. And usually if you overly consume carbohydrates, then yes, glucose can be converted into fatty acids too. But protein, man, in the body, it's pretty damn rare. It's it's really rare. You'd have to be consuming a considerable amount of protein and be in an extreme energy surplus to probably gain a significant amount of fat tissue from overly consuming protein. Yeah, but that's not to say that you can just eat a thousand grams of protein in a deficit. Oh, no, certainly not. Because, you know, it's still it's still energy balance, of course. But as we know, you know, protein has the highest thermic effect of food. So the from the amount of calories that you consume from protein, about 30% of those calories are going to be used just in the digestion and metabolizing and breaking down those proteins into amino acids and creating new bodily structures. So moving on to the next question by Lauren, she asks, weights, cardio, then eat, or weights, eat, then cardio? All right, so Lauren Greaves, she's just mentioned here that she's a bit unsure about meal timing. So Jack, what would you recommend to a client? Would they Should they do their weights and then their cardio straight afterward and then have a meal or split up weight and cardio sessions and have a meal in between? So if we're speaking optimally, then I would suggest putting your cardio as far away from your weight session as possible. And especially if it's higher intensity cardio, if it's just walking on the treadmill, then I'm not really that concerned about it. But it also depends on whether you're in a comp prep or off-season as well. Obviously, in an off-season, you'll have a lot more energy availability. But yeah, optimally, I would say do your weight session, then eat, and then do your cardio. Or you could alternatively do the cardio first thing in the morning. And then if you train in the afternoon or evening, that could also be uh, an option too. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it would probably be most optimal if you could try to split up those sessions. So, you know, like Jack said, maybe do more of your cardiovascular work in the morning, have a break where you have a meal or two, and then do your weight session in the afternoon or the night. But again, this is really going to depend on your work schedule and just basically time management in total because, you know, there are a lot of people who will work all day and they don't have necessarily time at night or in the morning to split up their training sessions. So they might be able to only get to the gym once. And in that case, obviously it is about total energy expenditure and it is about trying to get your complete session in, you know, and everything that your coach prescribes you. So if you do want to mix up your cardio and your weights, probably would recommend doing your cardio after your resistance training session. In a comp prep, it usually is likely that you are doing low intensity cardio. So like Jack said, maybe just walking on a treadmill, 
right? So it's not going to be super high intensity because we do know from some of the literature that there is an interference effect if you do resistance training and then high intensity work straight after that. So there can be some negative implications on the adaptations you would have got from that resistance training session and they may be blunted by doing high intensity cardio straight afterwards. But you know, if you do an upper body session and then you go for a half an hour walk on the treadmill, that is no issue whatsoever, especially considering a lot of people well, maybe not a lot, but I like I know that I definitely used to do this and there's certainly people out there who don't necessarily drive to the gym. They probably walk to the gym or they bike ride to the gym. They might even do a slow jog to the gym. I'm not sure if they necessarily consider that walk or that short little bike ride as cardio per se, and I certainly wouldn't think that it's going to negatively interfere with their resistance training adaptations either. But yeah, honestly, don't worry about it too much. You know, the main thing is that you are achieving your total energy goals for the day and consuming the right amount of calories for your goals. And you're also, you know, consuming the right amount of macronutrients for your goals too. And just being smart about your meal timing as well. As long as your pre and post workout meal are within four to six hours of one another, you know, and you've got protein and carbohydrates within each, you should be just fine. You should be just fine. So it's really about focusing on the bigger picture and those small minute details probably really aren't going to make too much of a difference in the large scheme of things. Sweet. All right. So this next question we're moving on to, this is by Merle's and she's asked, if you could only take three types of vitamins, what would they be? So Tia and I try to get all of our vitamins and minerals and micronutrients from our foods. So we don't actually usually supplement with any. So the way we're going to answer this question is basically recommend three vitamins that are often deficient in males and females. Yeah, so I guess number one out of the three, I would probably say this one is mainly for vegans and vegetarians. But the first one I would say is vitamin B12 because vitamin B12, it's only found in animal products and vitamin B12 is a super essential nutrient because it's, it's highly involved in DNA synthesis, cardiovascular health. Like if you don't have vitamin B12, you will have major health implications that can be deadly. So it's, it is quite dangerous. And yeah, because it's only found in animal products, it's super important for vegans, for sure, to consume vitamin B12 supplements. And vegetarians, if they're not consuming many animal products that aren't meat, you know, so if they're not consuming any fish, if they're not consuming any dairy, any eggs, really, really important to supplement vitamin B12. And it's actually pretty interesting because vitamin B12 is a water-soluble vitamin. And normally water-soluble vitamins, you know, if you ex consume them in excess, they aren't stored in the body. They will be excreted in urine. But because vitamin B12 is so essential, your liver actually can store vitamin B12. And I'm pretty sure it can have a storage Man, I think Veronique told us it was like up to four years maybe. So it's very significant. So yeah, vitamin B12, number one. What's number two? So yeah, the second one is folate, which is another one of the B vitamins. And it's incredibly important, especially for pregnancy and infancy as well, and adolescence. 
So folate is essential for red and white blood cell production in the bone marrow, convert carbohydrates into energy, and also the production of DNA and RNA. And you can get folate from beans, legumes, also green leafy vegetables as well. Yeah, folate is a super important one. And the reason why it's so important for pregnant mothers and adolescents is because it's super important in those developmental stages. So obviously a mother who is growing a child within her or a young child who is, you know, developing and going through uh, going through puberty. And what's also interesting about folate is that, yes, you get folate from your food sources, but it's actually one of the only vitamins that's actually more bioavailable in the folic acid form, so in the supplemental form. And if you are a pregnant mother, it's 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 pretty much mandatory that you consume folic acid prior to pregnancy and then during your stages of pregnancy too, because it helps with the child's, the formation of their spinal cord and it helps to prevent spinal bifida, which is a very, very tragic neurological disease that can be caused if a pregnant mother isn't consuming enough folic acid. So yeah, that's it's also an- quite common for people to have the genetic mutation where they can't convert the inactive to the active form of folate, which is also why folic acid supplementation is quite handy. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. And then the last one, our third one would be vitamin D. Now, vitamin D is an interesting one because it's one of the vitamins that we don't actually get much of in our diet. You can get a little bit of vitamin D from things like dairy products, some eggs, but we only usually get about 10% of our vitamin D from the diet. We actually make the majority of vitamin D within our skin when we're exposed to sunlight. But vitamin D is super important for bone health, cardiovascular health. It's also very important for the absorption of calcium in the small intestines too. It's very important for uh, brain health and cognitive function is this- probably not as big of an issue in Australia, but definitely in Europe, yeah, European countries. That's for sure. So countries that aren't exposed to like the people who live there don't get much sunlight exposure and they are indoors a lot or just because of where they're located on the planet, because of the, the way that the sun rises and the sun sets, their days are usually very short in terms of their light hours. And because they're so far away from the sun, the UV rays just aren't strong enough. Also, it's likely to be very cold, so they're very bundled up. So they don't have mu- their skin doesn't have much exposure to the sunlight. So vitamin D is a huge one. And if you are in that situation where you can't get enough sunlight exposure, it is probably damn recommended that you do supplement with vitamin D. That's for sure. So yeah, vitamin D, folate, and B12. Those would be our top three vitamins. So moving on to the next question, which is if I'm short on macros for the day, should I add them all to my final meal? So if we look at energy balance as a pyramid, the bottom of the pyramid will usually just be total energy intake, followed by stuff like total macro consumption, like distribution of meals throughout the day. However, the king will always be how much energy have you consumed in that 24 hour period? So yes, in short, you should be consuming, trying to consume all of your calories throughout the day as a priority, and then just worrying about meal distribution, the split of protein, carbs, and fat. So 
if you're concerned about weight loss or weight gain, then always prioritize the total energy intake. Yeah, I think that's a great answer. Okay, so we're going to move on to this next question. So this one says, squats or leg press or both if you have no injuries? Squats or leg press or both? So I guess they are a pretty similar movement really and it'll depend on your biomechanics. So for someone like me, well actually something quite funny, I'll, if you're on your phone just go on the bodybuilding dietitian's Instagram and check out the most recent photo of us together. And if you look at our waist heights, Tara's waist is about like half a body higher than mine. <laughs> it's actually hilarious. Like the where my hip bones stop and the length of my femurs. Like, <laughs> oh, it's, it's really funny. Mm. Jack and I only just realized it after we posted the photo. We're like, what the hell? And when we sit next to each other as well, like Jack's knees will like stop where only like half of my femur stops. So anyway <laughs> i'm still taller than you though he's still tall yeah jack just has a really long torso and i've just got stupidly long legs <laughs> anyway back to the question squats or leg press <laughs> well yeah this this is related anyway so someone like tiara who has very long femurs is probably not as suited for a squat which is why tiara doesn't squat uh but she does leg press whereas someone like me my uh Femurs are actually very short and just gives me a... Rub very... it in. <laughs> well, it's... Anyway. <laughs> he was born with it. <laughs> Which is... Just makes me better suited for something like a squat and also a leg press as well. So, I, I guess I am quite fortunate. But ideally, if you... Like, both would probably be better. Yeah, I would definitely say both. And, you know, obviously, people should be training their legs twice a week. So, if you wanted two movements that predominantly target your quads one day you might start with a squat and the other day you might start with some heavy leg press too but they've actually done some research on this as well and comparing people who just did a squat pattern for a number of weeks i don't know the study that well but i know the main you know the I main know the outcomes well. oh do you want to explain it yeah well it's essentially those people who just squatted as opposed to doing a variety of leg movements they both of the control groups got, sorry, both of the groups got a similar amount of hypertrophy, so muscle growth, but the people who did a variety of movements got greater muscle growth in a variety of quad muscles as opposed to just uh, in just in one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So when you think about the quadriceps, it's really a muscle group. So you've got, you know, your vastus lateris, your vastus medialis, your vastus intermedius, you've got your rectus femoris there. So you've sartorius. got sartorius, damn, longest muscle in the body. Ding, ding. <laughs> whoa uh anyway back to squats um anyway so essentially you are going to have hypertrophy from both but think about this we are physique athletes you know we're trying to look good at every single angle and we're trying to maximize growth in every single muscle group and every single individual muscle too so including a variety of exercises in your program even if they target the same muscle group so squats leg press hack squats uh lunges leg extension a whole variety of things right that's overall that is probably going to be more favorable for your physique development i would say and especially because you said you have no injuries doing either so i just do both mm. 
Yeah, it would be a different story if you're like a powerlifter where specificity is really important and practicing the same movement over and over to establish those neural connections as well. But yeah, definitely if you're a physique athlete, then doing a variety of movements. Yeah, I remember speaking to this powerlifter who used to train at the UQ gym and all he would ever do was squat, bench, and deadlift. And he actually told me, he's like, yeah, like two days ago, I did leg extension for the first time in months and my quads are so sore. And this was a dude who was squatting like, you know, well over 220 kilograms for reps kind of thing during his sessions. But because he was unaccustomed to something like leg extension, he got doms from leg extension compared to like a 230 kilogram squat, which I just thought was crazy. Mm. <laughs> Goes to show that doms is associated with novel stimulus. Yeah, unaccustomed exercise, that's for sure. So this next question is by Crystal and she asks, most effective way to reverse diet without gaining excessive weight, but getting calories high. So essentially the post comp period, oh, first of all, we have done answered this in some depth in some, one of our earlier episodes called reverse verse recovery dieting. It's the, <laughs> that's the main, um, tit- part of the title. So, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, essentially, I guess it might be a slight misconception that you don't, you can't necessarily get calories super high without excessive weight gain. That's going to be mainly the genetic component. So some people can literally shoot their calories straight up high after a competition and they will be quite resistant to excessive amounts of weight gain. And that those cough, cough Jack. <laughs> and those will usually be the people who have high calories in comp anyway. And then on the other hand, if you have been dieting for a very long period, your calories get very low during a prep. Uh, so I guess this happens to guys and girls as well, but it's unlikely that you'll experience like a super high amount of calories immediately. That being said though, I would recommend sticking to what your coaches are recommending for you and not going overboard with um, weight gain and sticking to around five to 10% of your stage body weight increase in the first four to six weeks after comp. Because you'll find that, say, if you gain about, let's just say for the sake of it, 10 kilos in the first week, you'll find that someone who has gained weight gradually as opposed to very quickly, the gradual individual will have a large energy requirement as opposed to someone who's gained 20 kilos or so in two weeks. Yeah, exactly. And this is really interesting because I got asked this question as well this morning by one of my clients who was talking about, they were like, oh, I can't wait to build up my metabolic rate to be as high as so-and-so, you know, and eat as much as so-and-so. And they were really asking me like, how do I build up my metabolism? How do I eat more food? And we really have to think about guys, you know, if you are consuming a high amount of food and you're able to maintain weight on that It's not just magical, you know, there has to be a reason behind it. And usually when you look at someone who has a very quote unquote high metabolism and can eat a lot of food, they have a pretty damn high energy expenditure or they have pretty significant muscle mass. So if you look at someone, right, who uh, can eat, let's say, upwards of 600 grams of carbs a day, you know, or they're on like over 4,000 calories per day, you know, they're certainly not going to be a couch potato, okay? They're probably going to have a pretty significant energy expenditure 
by either training really hard in the gym, you know, they're probably in there maybe two to three hours per day or, you know, around six days a week, they probably have a pretty decent step count too. A lot of people underestimate that some people are always on their feet during the day and they might walk between 10 to 20,000 steps per day. And also genetically, okay, like I know that Jack has a super high metabolic rate because he is always hot. And by always hot, (laughs) I mean that his skin is always hot. He's always really warm. Like you will rarely ever see Jack in a sweater or like track pants are all bundled up. All right. He'd have to be in a pretty cold environment for that because Jack genetically he just expends a lot a lot of energy naturally and the way that the body actually burns through calories and releases energy is it releases it as heat all right so when you are burning more calories you're t- you tend to be hotter and also that shows that through negative metabolic adaptations when for example deep into a comp prep a lot of you guys can probably relate to this during like crazy dieting periods is that you're always freaking cold and that's because your body has slowed down its metabolism it's not burning as much energy hence it's not releasing as much heat but also it's trying to conserve energy as well so it doesn't want to waste calories on trying to keep you warm it would rather just make you uncomfortable and force you to put on a sweater or maybe three. Yeah, and something else as well is the term calories in versus calories out is often thrown around. And if you take Tierra and I for an example, Tierra eats around like 400 grams of carbs a day, which is pretty damn high for a female. And I eat around like like 7 to 750 or so usually. And you have to look at our diets as well. We consume a shitload of fiber shitload of fiber (laughs) (laughs) and we get all of our the vast majority of our food from like whole grains fruits vegetables and we both consume a lot of protein as well probably more that's recommended and that's like tiara said in the at the start that's mainly because due to the amount of carbs we're eating a lot of that is a large proportion of those come from plant proteins yeah so our thermic effect of food is probably through the roof Yeah, and if I ate like, so let's say I'm eating four and a half thousand calories. If I ate that of Hungry Jacks and like Subway and like ice cream, then there's no way I'd be able to eat four and a half thousand calories worth of those foods because like I would just digest them like that. And compared to something like, I don't know, a bowl of oats or brown rice, yeah, anything like that. Yeah, exactly. So what you eat really does matter and it really does play a part. You know, it it goes so far beyond by just saying that a calorie is a calorie. But also I just wanted to end on is that the people who you look at who usually have quite high metabolic rates, they're pretty damn muscly too, or they usually have a pretty significant amount of muscle mass because the more muscle mass that you have, the more energy your body just has to uh, burn at rest just to maintain that muscle mass because I think muscle is only 25% efficient. I think, I think I remember that. Oh yeah. I learned that. Yeah. We learned that in exercise physiology or something. It's actually super inefficient, Mm. but yeah, per pound or per kilogram of muscle mass compared to fat mass, it requires significantly more energy and calories to maintain. So it's much more metabolically active compared to fat. So yeah, which is also why 
if Tara and I ever get a weight loss client, we always try and recommend them to do resistance training because once you have lost the weight, then your really your only option really is to keep at that same calorie intake. And say if you're a female, that might only be like 1500 or less calories a day, which is pretty, pretty nasty. But if you then add resistance training into the equation and gain more muscle mass and therefore still look lean, yet high, have a higher calorie requirement, then it's win. Yeah, exactly. So if you want to build up your metabolism, you know, do weight training, eat wholesome food, stay active during the day, keep your neat high, you and just... Ah, don't yo-yo diet. Don't yo-yo diet and get a damn good night's sleep. (laughs) So those are just a few tips from us. How to carb your way up into the hundreds, (laughs) almost the thousands for Jack. (laughs) So yeah, I think we'll wrap up there, guys. We've been going for about 40 minutes. All right. So we're going to end on our very last question for the day. And that's one thing that we learned this week. So what did you learn, Tiara? <laughs> what did I learn? I think you always go first every week now, don't you? So, all right. So what did I learn this week? So Jack rend- recommended me a very groovy book called The Dog Owner's Handbook. And the reason why is because Jack and I are looking to move out together in a few months. And we're also looking at getting a dog, which is super exciting. And because we want to grow up with this dog, we want to get it as a puppy. So I've been learning a lot of really cool and useful things about owning a dog for the first time and especially, you know, owning a puppy and raising a puppy and, oh, it's so exciting and I'm learning a lot and I've learned a hell of a lot of things from this book. But I think that a few really interesting things from a nutritional standpoint that I've learned is that when you pick up the puppy for the very first time and you bring it home, you actually want to bring back some of the water that it has grown up drinking. So the water from the breeder's house. And you might also want to bring back a bit of the breeder's food too. And the reason for this is that this puppy, you know, you probably only get them when they're around eight weeks old or so, maybe even younger. But because just like a baby, a puppy also, their digestive system, it's still developing and it still is very susceptible to illness, you know, and getting a harmful infection potentially from something that it eats that has harmful bacteria in it. So when you bring the dog home, you still want to make sure that it's still consuming the similar amount of water that it's grown up consuming and the similar amount of food. And then slowly you can start to wean them off that by combining their new food that you've bought it with a bit of their old food and a bit of water from your new tap compared to water from their old tap. So I just thought that was really, really interesting, obviously, because I'm super interested in nutrition and the microbiome and I'm learning things about dog microbiomes too and how to make sure that my puppy is healthy and safe and not pooing all over the laundry room floor. So, (laughs) all right, Jack, what did you learn this week? So I guess I'll end with a dog fact as well, since everyone loves dogs. And something I learned from the same book was that when you do pick the dog up, you should also see how it interacts with the mother and see what the temperament of the mother is as well. So if the puppy, if the mother's nasty to its son or daughter, puppy or... (laughs) Or if the if the mother is quite angry uh, to you or she's very shy or aggressive, then 
it might be wise to look at another breeder. Yeah, because you don't want those angry genes getting in, passing down through your little cute puppy, right? Yeah, and apparently you should never take it as an excuse for why you can't see the mom. You should always be able to see the mom with all of her puppies, and she should be very calm, and she shouldn't mind you being around her puppies. So those are just a few little things. We've learned a hell of a lot about puppies uh, from this book. (laughs) It's really fun, to be honest. Okay, so that is the end of our 38th podcast episode. Thank you guys so much for tuning in again. Uh, We just love the feedback. So happy that you guys are now liking that we're releasing two of these per week. So yeah, like we mentioned before at the beginning of the podcast, if you enjoy this episode, please take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag Jack, tag myself, tag the bodybuilding dietitians, tell your family, tell your friends, check out our new website, and we'll catch you next week. See you guys. (laughs)